Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about what it means to have a liturgical spirituality. In some ways, this is akin to having like a Franciscan spirituality or a Dominican spirituality. And in other ways, I think it's something that we should all have as Catholics. I also want to give two shout outs. Uh, the first shout out I want to give to Adam and David from the Catholic Man Show. I just listened to your episode about liturgy and you kind of talked about our show and what we're doing in terms of liturgy. So thank you so much for that. Keep up the good work. The second shout out I want to give to Jana from Catholic Women Run. Uh, I was listening to an interview that you did for another podcast about how you like to listen to our show while you run. So if you're running right now, run faster. No, even faster. Even faster than that. And without further ado, episode 26 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. We are the Liturgy Guys. All right, what I thought we would talk about today, <laughs> and what we, what we actually are going to be talking anyone? about, yeah, if there's anybody still out there, is liturgical spirituality. This, I have to say, is a, is a word that always psychs me out. Spirituality. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm spiritual and but religious. Not, but not religious. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, people we're, often we're use, religious, not spiritual. So we'll, people have to, we'll have to muddle our way through. <laughs> often it. use the word to mean whatever the heck they want it to mean. What is spirituality? Well, properties? that's a good question. Yeah, so let's start with that. What does spirituality mean? Yes, um, that's the question. Yeah, that's the question. All I right. call on you. That's Wait, the question. is this a liturgy question? All right. Let, let's, uh, this is my stab at it. I'm not an expert in spirituality, but this is how I see it. So... Uh, all of the baptized begin in the font, and they're supposed to end up in heaven. Okay? So they have those things in common. Begins with the font, ends in heaven. Starts with baptism, then you live out your baptismal calling until you get to heaven. There's some standard steps that all the baptized take to get to heaven. So it's uh, living the sacraments, receiving the sacraments. It's uh, studying and understanding uh, the church's teaching and the doctrine. Check. Some people, Check. Got those. Some people are Thomas Aquinas and some people are Francis of Assisi. This, don't, just don't get... To, oh, hold don't. on, hold on. And then, but there's always an, uh, an action element too. So there's, there's something about uh, what you know, how you love, and uh, how you live, how you live your life. Okay? So those are common elements. Begin with baptism, go to heaven, follow these general paths. Okay? But the details of those paths can differ according to temperament, personality, gifts, charisms, whatever it might be. And this is where I think spirituality comes in. I see. So I wonder if this is a decent analogy. So let's say the three of us are going to go to the refectory. So we're all mm-hmm. beginning here in the Liturgical Institute. What's a refectory? Building. It's a lunchroom, Jesse. Lunchroom. Why, why don't we just call it the lunchroom? Okay. Uh, so we're all going to go to the lunchroom. Refactory. Refactory. We are remade. That's right. 
And so we're going to begin at the same spot and end in the same spot, but we might take three different paths to get there. I am going straight to the Tabasco sauce and the chili peppers. No, no, no. no. This is on the way to the Oh, on the way. Oh, darn it. Dennis might hit like a handrail and then get stuck somewhere. Yeah, I'm going to complain about the architecture all the way there. (laughs) Yeah, or Jesse might have to stop by some office and pick something up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chris, because it's cold outside, he's going to cut through the... Has to go to the the bathroom. Probably. He's going to cut through the building because there's a little bit of warmth. Okay, so we're each going to take our own different way from this room to that room. And those, I wonder if aren't... um, apt analogies to what spirituality is. So spirituality, a particular spirituality, uh, emphasizes di- uh, different um, ideas or exercises or prayers of way of living to get everybody from point A to point B. From In a way to that, that is proper and delightful to them, right? Yes. God is not a rigid them. legalist. No, he's not. He's a liberal. What? He, <laughs> he leaves you free. Well, he, uh, he allows a lot of leeway based on, you know, the diversity in uh, the temperaments that we have. Right. So right. if you have eight kids, they might like different things. Yeah. So there's, it's, con- it's conceivable. See what I did there, Jesse? <laughs> See what I did there? Yes. I love it. He's giving you his dirt, oh, dirty face yeah. again. A he, self bell. You nice. Wow. So Bells the, are not grasped at, Chris. They are given. The type of spirituality that a father of eight has may be different from the type of spirituality that a priest has or that you, Dennis, as a single person have. You know, we might pray in different well, ways at different times. What I was saying is a father who's wise might have eight kids who recognizes one of them's oh, a scientist, one of them's a carpenter, one of them wants mm-hmm. to be a mom, mm-hmm. one wants to be whatever. And you don't try to cram the wrong kid in the wrong outcome. You try to find what their yeah. natural vocation yeah. is. Yeah, on the one hand, they all have the same last name. They all do certain <laughs> things uh, you know, that are a part of the family that everybody in the family has to do. But there's, uh, there's allowances for, mm-hmm. for what they do differently. So... Um, that's generally what I would say spirituality is. So what are some examples, uh, before we get to liturgical spirituality, mm-hmm. so what, how would you describe Benedictine spirituality? Contemplative, uh, observant of liturgical stuff, stability, vows, poverty, community. Mm-hmm. So people who want to be Benedictines usually are not people who want to live out in the woods alone. They want to live with people and share a common life. Excellent. Yep, so aura et aura labora. Aura yeah. Yep, uh, hospitality is a Benedictine uh, trait, Lexio Divina, the divine office, the rule of St. Benedict. All those things would kind of, uh, they're, they're more pre- precise applications, more particular ways of living out the baptismal calling. So compare that to, say, Franciscan spirituality. Oh, way different. How? Well, that, the, Francis had a simplistic lifestyle. Simplicity? So... so uh, poverty, sometimes poverty. sometimes extreme poverty, mm-hmm. um, in order to then connect uh, in a better way to God's creation. Okay, so a, nature, creation. Yeah, Absolutely. Also mendicants, they go around where they're needed and preach yeah. rather than the vows of stability in one abbey for the rest of their what lives. Do we, what's Dennis's favorite word that has to do with creation? Oh, sorry. Incarnation. They have a very incarnational. Don't you like incarnation? Are you I for thought, the incarnation? I thought ontology not, was his Favorite, favorite word. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I like them both. What like incarnation both. is that? So there's a, there's a great emphasis <laughs> on uh, the, 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 the human nature of Jesus and the suffering Jesus, stations of the cross, uh, brother, son, sister, moon, things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what about Dominicans? No idea. Skip intellectual, it. Skip it. intellectual, Pass. also community, also okay. mendicants, also yeah. free to go, but yeah, high but, regard for the intellectual life. Okay, what's the OP business mean? Order of preachers. All right, so if you're going to preach the truth and combat error, there's going to be a great uh, study component. Right. You have to know uh, what well. you're preaching if you're going to preach it well. All right. All right, so you see in these three uh, religious lives, there's three sort of 
different paths, different emphases on different elements of the body of faith that, depending on one's uh, temperament and gifts and charisms and whatnot, appeal to some more than Dominic, others. Dominican so, one's definitely so what's, the best. what's the difference between spirituality and charism, then? That's what I say. What's the what's difference? What's the difference? Sorry yeah. for the curveball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I would say a charism is a certain... Uh, what does it mean? It means gift, doesn't it? So you have... Jesse, the charism of making puns. Mm-hmm. Or is that a vice? There's no religious. So, yeah, it's both. I think that comes from below. It's my gift and it's my curse. Yeah, okay. It's your gift and it's our curse. <laughs> so, um, so depending on the certain, uh, I don't know, personality, gifts, charisms, the things that make you you, you might find more of a, uh, an attraction or consonance with a particular type of uh, family's spirituality. Mm-hmm. Like you can say, boy, that that person would really be a good Franciscan. Mm-hmm. Or so-and-so might be a very well-suited to be a Jesuit or a Carmelite or something like that. Hopefully nobody right. tells you you should be a Carthusian. So there's... Uh, or a Stylite. <laughs> you should be an anchorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, or a Stylite. These are really nerdy jokes, by the way. Yeah. So You belong on top of a pole alone. <laughs> so what's the relationship between spirituality and charism? I think they're related. The spirituality is meant to, uh, to bring a person's charisms to, to completeness, to holiness. So right? it's a part of the whole... Like one so. part, you know, just charism, traits, give, you know, all that stuff that completes the spirituality. I think so. The spirituality fosters the traits and the charism. Okay, perfect. Okay. Now, and so, um, but you don't have to be religious, say. Do you have to be a monk or a, a religious? A I see. What, okay, like got it. Okay. I didn't mean to do that one. Um, but so, can laypersons be a part of these spiritual families? Well, they can, and so they're, they're used to, uh, I suppose there still are, you know, maybe someone would be a third-order Dominican, right? So I'm not, I'm, uh, I'm not a friar. Are Dominicans friars? They are. Okay. So I'm not a professed religious Dominican friar, but uh, I'm a layperson that has uh, a lot of the, I'm drawn to these types of uh, spiritual characteristics, or I could mm-hmm. be a third-order karma, whatever it might be, okay? Um, this wasn't an invention of the the council, but there's an emphasis at the council about a universal call to holiness and that the layperson's, I'm really starting to talk out of my league here, the layperson doesn't need to imitate a priest or a religious to find his or her way to holiness. Uh, Every element in life is to to be sanctified and can sanctify. So there are, and even these uh, predate uh, the council too, but say uh, a spirituality that's uh, associated with Opus Dei. So Opus Dei is, I suppose, not exclusively for laity, but it's uh, composed mostly of lay people. So how would you describe this lay spirituality of Opus Dei? Um, being holy in the world, making life holy. We tend to look at a religious order and say, that's the real thing. And if lay people are holy in the world, that's some kind of watered-down second-rate version. Mm-hmm. But actually, yeah. I think what Escrivau really saw was that be holy in your everyday life. That's what every Christian has to live up to their baptismal promises. Okay. Yeah, so there's a sanctity through work and a sanctification of work, whereas the secular world that most lay people, uh, well, all lay people, I guess, by definition, uh, live in, gets to be sanctified. There's other lay uh, spiritualities as well. Okay, so that's what spirituality is. Uh, Here are some examples of certain spiritual schools. Now, what about a liturgical spirituality? Maybe the first question I want to ask was, well, who cares? 
Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I want. That's what, that's what I say. Okay. Who cares? Well, doesn't so everybody the, have the, the call to worship God? Like everybody has yeah, liturgical spirituality. Be, uh, yeah. Although I suppose even in that, I mean, you and I wouldn't pray like say a Benedictine or a Carthusian or something like that. But but yeah, there will be everyone must have to some degree a liturgical spirituality. But the genesis of this question comes from Pope Saint John Paul II. So in um, uh, let's see, 2003. <laughs> Did you see him like, count on his fingers? Yeah, I know. It's like all the gears in his head. Like, <laughs> oh, exact okay. date. So Boom. in 2003 was the 40th anniversary of Sacra Sanctum Conchulium. And that's the year I graduated high school. Oh, that's Just to the make year you guys I was feel born. Okay. Uh, so John Paul II wrote this uh, letter called Spiritus et Sponsa. Mm-hmm. The Spirit and the Bride say come. So it's mm-hmm. a line from Revelation. Where what he does is he recalls the principles and norms of the council and sees how they've been implemented and what we might do to further implement them in the future. But his last word of the, of the letter, uh, he says this, at the beginning of this millennium, may a liturgical spirituality be developed. Mm. All right, so this is a call from John Paul II to develop a liturgical spirituality. Now, he goes on to say, develop a liturgical spirituality that... Dot, dot, dot. And he describes kind of the features. Oh, I, thought, I thought he was going to leave yeah. a cliffhanger. Oh, I'm tired of I'll this. let the yeah. next pope decide. <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> a letter written by with two hands. Isn't right. that yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. All right. So he gives a little description of what liturgical spirituality would look like. But I'm going to leave you hanging for a little bit. Oh. So I want to ask you guys, what features do you think um, would be a part of a liturgical spirituality? Christocentricity. Yeah. I think this is a great question because I don't know who has taken up this call. Who has taken upon himself to develop a liturgical spirituality? The Liturgical the Institute. Well, I guess. <laughs> you're Christopher watching, you're watching it right now. Okay. So what uh, what features would be, you know, we, we, we talked about what would characterize a Franciscan spirituality, Opus Dei spirituality. Well, what would you see in a liturgical spirituality? Well, it would always be centered on Christ, right? Glorification of God and the sanctification of the people. There's no other way to have any spirituality around the liturgy. Okay, so uh, yes, the answer is always Ding. Jesus. Yes, can you say more about uh, this Jesus? <laughs> Tell me more about this. Gonna, let's Jesus press this a little bit. Of. Well, I well, when he says a liturgical spirituality, I suppose you can have a number of liturgical spiritualities as well. They all have to be Christocentric, but you could emphasize the humanity of Christ, the divinity of Christ, like the Franciscans, right? The divinity of Christ, the uh, cosmological glory of Christ, as the mm-hmm. Eastern churches often mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one, there's one aspect of Christ's uh, person and work that uh, that we'll hear John Paul II name. Christ as priest. So, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, now we're getting to it. Um, this uh, this priestly act is the height of what's called the. You know, remember this bridge building, Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus. And he builds this bridge so that he can, what? If there's a bridge, you can walk over it, walk over, pass over, Paschal mystery. So a liturgical spirituality, according to John Paul II, is based on the Paschal mystery of Jesus. Oh, wow. I love it. Okay. Mm. So um, can I interrupt? There's a cool story. Um, There's a first century document called the Life of Adam and Eve in the Jewish document. And when you read through the uh, scriptures, you'll often see the, the term waters. God is surrounded by the waters, or the waters are frozen at his touch. The book of Revelation has a, the throne of Jesus surrounded by a sea of crystal. And the sea is always this chaos and death and disorder that keeps you away from God. But the I see where you're going. Uh, there's a line in the Psalms that says, the waters are frozen at his touch. Or Christ had control over the storm. He could walk on water. So if he's the Pontifex, he's the one who bridges the gap between him and humanity. So 
uh, in this life of Adam and Eve, they said that the um, the waters were frozen by the touch of Christ that separated heaven and earth, and then humanity walked across this really? kind of crystal ice bridge back oh. to Jesus, which is why the throne in the book of Revelation is surrounded by a sea of crystal. It's not just ice, but it's brought to a glorification like a gem. How about that? That is very wow. cool. So, so you can make a cool so floor. totally in enculturating that chaos and creating order out of it. Well, yeah. Because that's what a crystal is. It's completely perfect in Regularized in molecular yeah. structure. Jesse, yeah. nice. You're welcome, everybody. Nice. Jesse was pre-med for a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that's a liturgical alley-oop right there. <laughs> Dennis tossed it up, and I just slammed it down. <laughs> Pre-med for a few minutes. That's great. How long were you pre-med? Uh, no, I was a biology major. Well, that wasn't that for, for a semester. Oh, okay. So, all right. I for gave, a few, up, a few I gave up real quick. But to, but sure enough, you know, it, it's so important to understand the Paschal Mystery and all of these like prefigurements in the Old Testament that have to do with the Paschal Mystery, they all, as you suggest, involve water, whether it's the passing through the Red Sea the passing of uh, Joshua and the chosen people out of the desert through the, the Jordan, Jordan River. River. Uh, before Elijah gets taken up in the fiery chariot, uh, he rolls up his the mantle of his uh, uh, his mantle and he smacks the water at uh, I think it's at Jericho, smacks the Jordan River and it stops and it separates and he walks across. He passes over, and it's there that he's taken up into the chariot. There's something about Bethany too. Bethany, uh, one of the things they think about the name, the meaning of the name Bethany was that it was the, called the house of misery. Right before Christ went up to the Temple Mount on what we have now is Palm Sunday. He was in Bethany, he started in Bethany. Then he had to cross the Jordan River and then go into the Holy of Holies, so to speak, of the Temple Mount. So he went from the misery of the earth through the waters of the Jordan and then yeah, it's to Jerusalem. And even his baptism, too. He had to pass into the water and be baptized. Well, they say where, uh, I saw this in a footnote, I guess, somewhere, where John the Baptist was baptizing is the place where Joshua led the chosen people across mm. uh, into the Promised Land. Mm. And I think in the, uh, in the Gospel of John where he's in the temple and they try to seize him and he escapes from their midst, where does he go but to the place beyond the Jordan where John had been baptizing. Yeah. So that's how he gets to the other side of the Jordan is from there that he'll pass through and the And you waters. know my other, wa we're not even talking about spirituality anymore, my other water story is that one of the Jewish myths was that the rock, or that the temple was built on top of the Temple Mount, <clears throat> was actually the place where the water sprang out for the flood of Noah and that the, God put a big rock on it, basically like a cap. And so when Jesus says to Peter, you are a rock, and what you bind in heaven will be bound on earth and so on. It means Peter has authority now over disorder, chaos, and he's the rock over the flood of this. He's spring. the captain. And so uh, water is chaos, disorder, and evil, right? And put the rock on it, and you have... And this is where the Temple Mount was built? Exactly, the, right. The Temple Mount built right on top of the rock. All right, to, I'm only echoing you here. I only know this because I heard you say it once too about the the water that flowed from beneath the temple into the, the water the and blood, Valley. Yeah. yeah, because they were sacrificing animals, right? And so they'd pour it in these drains, and the blood and water would mix. There, yeah. Okay, this is the spring. I and guess then they had to get about. it out, and then it went all down the Kidron Valley, like a yucky stream okay. of cow. Well, poop. Uh, yeah, all right, all right. Yeah. Let's skip that yeah. part. Well, <laughs> but then Christ walked across that to come into the uh, Temple Mount and. Well, and I guess what I was saying too is he becomes the new temple whose side is opened up and outflows right. the, the blood, and, blood water. and water from the right hand side. Alleluia, alleluia. Right. So this is why okay. there's a sacramental life in the church. Oh, that's going to be. <clears throat> all right, all right. So, so, okay, as, so as the you number were. one point of uh, liturgical spirituality is focused on Jesus. You're right, Dennis, but especially on his Paschal work, the Paschal mystery. All right. Number two, the uh, second point two. is what? It's this word you just mentioned. 
I mean, wouldn't Cal- it be great? No. Sac- Sacramento. Gosh. What did you say? Sacramento. Yeah. Something? Thank you, Jesse, for You're paying welcome. attention. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I said a lot I mean, of words. <laughs> he did we say a lot yeah, of words. Yeah, he did. Uh, so, I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could uh, participate in this Paschal mystery like Jesus did 2,000 years ago? Wouldn't it be great mm-hmm. if we could pass over these if waters and see there was and only a way? I know. Anamnesis. Well, well through, and that's a part of the sacrament. All of what Jesus did is now sacramentalized. It's turned into a sacrament. And this is what the, the church's liturgies are composed of, whether it's the seven sacraments or sacramentals that surround them or the other sacramental things. We did a podcast once about uh, theses on church architecture and how the, the church building is uh, not a skin for liturgical action, but everything in it has, excuse me, has this sacramental quality about it that can be a manifestation of the paschal mystery of Jesus. So I have an architectural liturgical spirituality. I guess you too. Yeah. Yeah. An, uh, architectural Dominican liturgical. Yeah, well, that's right. It is a rather intellectualized understanding. But what's interesting about the liturgical spirituality is that all of the other spiritualities that we talked about are, can partake in that as well, in addition to, and it's the thing that unites all of us. Well, and I think this is what uh, what the Holy Father has in mind. He doesn't say let him it turn, and me both. Let it, yeah. when I, you can't think of one without the other. I know. When he says let it, liturgical spirituality be developed, he doesn't mean for laity or for men or for women or for you know Greek educated. Or Jew. Yeah, right. Yeah. So every single liturgical spirituality should be tapped into. You know, this as its source and summit. Now they can emphasize different elements, but this should be a common feature of every spirituality. I think. So this is the second point, is that um, it, it's made, it has a great appreciation of the sacramental. Okay? And not just the seven sacraments, just how visible material, this is a, the sacramental principle that we speak about, through visible material, uh, God and man come to meet. But what if I think my particular liturgical spirituality is something that's kind of contrary to the liturgy. So I like my, my spirituality is to say whatever I want and feel feelings and have emotions and give hugs. Is that not legit? Uh, it is. This would be another point that it I is? would put. Well, sort of, oh, sort of. I thought I was a, setting you up third, for a no way, man. Yeah, well, a third uh, key to a liturgical spirituality, I would say, is that it's not limited to the liturgy. There's Ooh. extra liturgical elements to it. And by this, I, I think I mean, I think I mean. <laughs> Tell me what things. you think you mean. I think I mean this. First is that it's not limited solely to the liturgy. There's things, a devotional life, a, a personalized uh, devotional life, a popular piety, private prayer that is Dennis McNamara specific. Wow. There's not anybody else in the whole world who has this element of liturgical spirituality. I'm trademark that. Copyright. <laughs> well, nobody else would want it. Yeah, well. Well, nobody else would I need wouldn't. it because they all have, there's the, Jesse, there's the Jesse Weiler, there's the Kevin Thorne. Everything has, uh, has its extra liturgical element to it. And so this, I think, is the third part. A liturgical spirituality isn't limited to the liturgy. It has other prayer forms that prepare us to come to the liturgy and other... Uh, types of piety and prayer that expand the liturgy. And those are specific to, even though the liturgy kind of has an objective and universal quality to it, it has to be made personal, I suppose, through yeah. a personal like the, We talk about the domestic liturgy or paraliturgical stuff or whatever. Yeah, it grows out of that. But the, the second element, I would say, too, is that it has an effect out on uh, in the real world. 
Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's meant to change how you live in the world. Okay, so there's three things. Paschal Mystery of Jesus, sacramentalized, it's extra liturgical. Uh, I came up with a couple of more. <laughs> you, you, is, you improved on both. John well, no, no, no. I'll, I'll tell. I'll. We, I'll ask him if that's something we want what, you to do. What else is a common element of the liturgy today? It's focused on the Paschal mystery, sacraments, but what else? Uh, community. Yeah. Oh, there's there's a mystical body theology. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, like what do you commonly see in the liturgy or hear? The heaven, singing heaven voice and singing. What do you see? Music. A word, word. Yeah. What text. is it that you're singing? Te- what kind of text? Sacred text. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I feel like this text. is liturgical game night. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> sacred scripture. So a liturgical spirituality is based okay, on the word of God. Of course. Okay. So whether it's uh, the revealed word of God in the scriptures, or I mean, what are the, what are so many of our prayers uh, composed of? To God, from God, about God. Yes, That's by, God. Yeah. by, by God. God. <laughs> by God. Okay. Not so by God. Not by Jove. So a liturgical God. spirituality is based on the word of God, uh, probably involves some sort of Lexio Divina by way of preparation. It proclaims the word of God. It's attentive to the word of God. John Paul, excuse me, Pope Benedict would use this word logicize or mm-hmm. logify. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're called to be logified. That comes from the German understanding of the no, word. No, Logification. Uh, so <laughs> it comes from, from the Greek word for logos. So oh, you, no, you, but, but in German, we said yeah. in one podcast that they would say that you can um, eyes things. Oh, yeah. You oh, yeah. German just language. add them all together. Yeah. Just throw some hyphens in there. Mm-hmm. So to be logified is to listen to the word and let it transform you. And this right. is uh, the, four, the f- last point I would put in there. Transformation or divinization. Yes. Is that uh, as a cell of the mystical body of Christ, it's supposed to sanctify you. You could be so, transfigured. Uh, transfigured. That's precisely right. Be transfigured. Be transfigured. Be transfigured. Be, be transfigured. So a liturgical spirituality is meant to divinize you, transform you, transfigure you, sanctify you, perfect you, all the rest. So you could say, if you want to learn how to do this better, you should come to the uh, Young Adult Liturgy Conference study weekend called we Which is those? called Transfigured. T R A N S F I G U R E D. That was. Did you do that on the spot? I was working on that while Chris was talking. Thanks. I appreciate it. Anyway. Okay, so to recap what you all have come up with here. So the features of a liturgical spirituality would be these it's focused on Jesus and his Paschal mystery. Good advice. It's made of a great appreciation of sacraments and sacramental signs. Because there's no other way. Okay, the revealed word of God, actually, Jesus is the word of God. So the word of God has a very central point uh, or place in the liturgy as well. That's the truth we're going to celebrate. Okay, a fourth, it's meant to divinize and sanctify and perfect you. Because that's the goal of all of it. Absolutely. And last, it's not restricted to the liturgical celebration itself. It involves some personal piety before and after and is meant to change your life outside of the liturgy too. And that brings about the kingdom of God in the world. Yes. And then you don't kill each other. All right. In case you want to know, this is uh, how he he finished his uh, description. I do want to know. He said... At the beginning of this millennium, may a liturgical spirituality be developed that makes people conscious that Christ is the first liturgist who never ceases to act in the church and in the world through the Paschal mystery, continuously celebrated, and associates the church with himself in praise of the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit. There you go. All right. I think he nailed it. Yeah, I think he did a good job on that. Liturgy is the exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ, which is bringing us to the Father. So ask yourself, is that your liturgical spirituality? Yes. Mine is mostly complaining about violation of the rubrics. That's what I do. <laughs> well, that's one way to go about <laughs> yeah. it, I guess. That, breaks, that brings everybody closer to God. Uh, yeah. That's a valid 
com- you know, irrational combat commentary, that's my liturgical spirituality. Yeah. All well, right. Well, I think it's time to answer a liturgy question. What do you guys think? Yeah. Kevin? I mean, yes. Kevin? He, he's all in. He's all all right. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Be for, for all transfigured. You be, be transfigured. T-R-A-N-S-F-I-G-U-R-E-D. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. This question comes from Jaden. Jaden says, uh, and sorry, Jaden, I had to abbreviate your question just to get everything timely. Jaden says, hello, I've just begun listening to the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. And I'm in the process of catching up. I've just listened to the Alter podcast, season one, episode 16. I have a brief question. Uh, As you have been discussing the various symbols in the church and the real sacramental quality of the beyond beyond the mere signification, I'm a little confused as to the precise liturgical definition, definition of the relation between these symbols. For example, you discuss how the altar of the church is a site of sacrifice, and as Jesus' body is the site of sacrifice, the altar represents Jesus' body and is, to a degree, treated as such. For example, baptism, confirmation, and during the dedication. Does the altar significance or identity or identity ontologically change during Mass as opposed to outside of Mass since the tabernacle reigns primary focus for genuflection, etc. after Mass is over. Was this the same before Vatican II as well or was it changed in the Council? It would be wonderfully helpful to know the answer. Thank you for your help. Mm. It would be wonderful to know yeah. the answer. Yeah. Well, answer. too bad we can't answer it for you, James. I would, I would, if someone asked me this question, I'd be calling Chris. So, <laughs> so Chris. Well, first of all, let's talk about symbolizing versus signifying, right? So a sign is a reality that refers, it's a thing that refers you to a reality somewhere else. So if you had a sign that you printed off your copier and it said altar with an arrow and pointing you to the altar, that would be a sign of the altar. Altar is over there. Altar, however, signifies itself, and in this case, uh, makes Christ present somehow through this altar and so that you call it a symbol of christ because christ is it's the church says it's it's a symbol of christ standing amidst his people so christ is in the middle of the world we're all looking at him he's there with us and the altar makes that real to us so church in the round so well in in the circumstances as they say <laughs> in Latin. focus of attention yeah uh but you couldn't say, I'm going to go do benediction of the altar like you would with the Blessed Sacrament. So mm. what, is this, what is the distance, or the difference there, Chris? Yeah. I also want to I, know the answer yeah, to this no, question. I think, uh, I wish I remember the word used to describe that. Um, it's, th- this, is, uh, I, this is how uh, Pope Paul VI describes uh, this uh, liturgical year. Okay? So time itself is a symbol. Sunday is a symbol. 
6 a.m. is a symbol. March 25th is a symbol in, in a similar way to uh, how the altar is a symbol. All right, so this is what he says about time. He says, in re recalling the mysteries of redemption, the church opens to the faithful the riches of our Lord's powers and merits so that these are in some way made present at all times. And the faithful are enabled to lay hold of them and become filled with saving grace. And I think... Um, it's just the nature of things that in some way that we're not quite sure how the reality which is symbolized by Sunday or 6 a.m. or the altar or the stained glass window or the priest chair or the sanctus 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 those things which are of a sacramental quality and we're not saying sacramental character for a particular reason sacramental character is something that you get from baptism confirmation and holy orders but Everything in the church is this tapestry of sacramental signs and symbols that in some way, don't know how, like actually the mechanics are, you know, even how the sacraments themselves convey Jesus to us, theologians and doctors of the church debate the way in which that happens. There's all mm -hmm. various theories of uh, efficacy. Um, but what we know is that, um, you know, the church uses these things as the, the means by which Christ comes to us. Now, um, that's not, we should say, on the other hand, though, the stained glass window is not the Blessed Sacrament. They're right. not the same things. The altar is not the Blessed Sacrament. Vatican II speaks of par excellence, right? The, the Eucharist is the real presence par excellence. Par right, excellence. so she has this paragraph about Jesus being present in the minister when he's uh, exercising his ministry in the assembled people, when the word is proclaimed, in the sacraments, but he's present, as Dennis says, par excellence, in the most excellent way in the Blessed Sacrament, in the Eucharist, because that presence is substantial and abiding. You want to know what John Paul II said? Yes, I do. In Ecclesia de Eucharistia in 2003, he said, the real presence is called real not as a way of excluding all other types of presence, as if it's only in the Eucharist, as if they were not real, but because it is a presence in the fuller sense, a substantial presence whereby Christ, the God-man, is wholly and entirely present. So in the Blessed Sacrament, you have Christ substantially present, wholly and entirely, and other things you maybe have some lesser participation of Christ's presence, but mm -hmm. it's still some presence. But the goal would still be to, like as you say all the time, Dennis, is if it's an altar that is supposed to be Christ's presence, it should still reveal that ontology even though it's not real presence in terms of the Eucharist because they right. still have the same ontology. It's a real presence right. in small r but it's not the full and total entirety real presence, so you wouldn't worship it as you can, say, you you can say, speak of worship of the Blessed Sacrament. Maybe you say the reality is the same in all cases, whether it's the altar, the Blessed Sacrament, or the stained glass window, or the edifice of the church. The reality of everything is Jesus Christ. Now, each of those different examples reveal and manifest Christ to the church in different ways, but all of them do that so that in some way, the faithful can encounter Christ in the stained glass, in the edifice of the church, in the altar, and in these uh, other ways. So, think exactly. that helps? Yeah. And now the question is, do, when, what, does the altar change in, it's, during liturgy or not? I don't think ontologically it changes in its very essence, but sometimes you're paying attention to one thing, sometimes you're giving primacy to something else. So I think the altar doesn't become more Christ during Mass than it would before, but it's at the center of the liturgical action, and it makes yeah. sense at that moment. On the other hand, Ooh. so the altar uh, becomes an altar through uh, a, a, a sacramental ritual. That is not one of the seven sacraments, but a sacramental, a uh, dedication of an altar. 
And what um, some theologians speak of is, you know, how certain sacraments bestow sacramental character that kind of, we would say, really makes you change into mm-hmm. the image of Christ. Uh, the altar through the sacramental is, uh, the, we used to call these, uh, the church used to call them constitutive blessings. Did we use the word constitutive? Oh, yeah, it, it did, makes yeah. Mutually constitutive. Yeah. yeah, and so they would liken that. They would say it kind of has a quasi-character. So it's not quite like sacramental character or baptism, say, but it's not entirely different. So that, you know, before the altar is consecrated, it's just wood and marble and things like that. But after it is consecrated, whether it's inside the liturgy or outside the liturgy, it has a different, in a certain way, ontological Mm -hmm. reality Mm -hmm. about it. Now, is it changed from within Mass and outside of Mass? I would say no, even though the attention we would give to it, uh, there's kind of a a primacy or priority of attention whether Mass is being celebrated or not. Well, I mean, with the Stations of the Cross, you know, that are in churches, they don't change whether you're doing the Stations or, you know, reciting them or doing that or not. Um, but they do exist, and, and so it's whether you're using them. Right. Or they become not. your natural focus when you're doing the stations. Correct, but they don't change. Right. right. Okay. Well, that's a great question. I hope, yes. I hope we got the answer right. But you know, I think it's just it's a question that can't. <laughs> that's ha- not I what I want to hear. No. Well, it, it, it's, <laughs> I hope it's, I got it right. It's a question. We're not going to commit to anything more than the church does. Right. And I think Paul the sixth line here about in some way Christ is made present. You know, that's as precise as you can get. Sure. However, the Catechism does mention in 1374 that in the Eucharistic species, it's unique. The, the mode of his presence is mm-hmm. unique. It's uniquely perfect. Uh, it's called the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all sacraments tend. I don't think you could say that about an altar or any other thing right. that renders Christ present. You know, the Vatican II speaks of the mo- different modes of presence in the word and the minister and two or three gathered in the name, the assembly. But none of them equal the fullness of Christ's presence, which uh, is only in the Blessed Sacrament. So it gets treated in a unique way compared to all the other presences. All right, Jaden. First of all, I'm glad you asked this question because I also wanted to know. And second of all, I hope this answers your question like Chris. <laughs> and if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and, and God, God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.